Welcome to China in Context, the weekly podcast from the SOAS China Institute in London. I'm Zuri Linetsky, research fellow at the Eurasia Group Foundation in Washington, D.C. Each of the 54 countries in Africa is unique, but nearly all of them have developed a relationship with China. Some borrow money from China or use Chinese funds to develop infrastructure like roads and ports. China is also active in African universities, and the Chinese media has a story to share with the African public. I'm pleased to welcome a renowned scholar whose research focuses on the way in which China projects itself in Africa and the Global South. Maria Repnikova, Associate Professor in Global Communications at Georgia State University. Maria, thanks so much for accepting our request to take on this important topic. Thank you for inviting me. So to dive right in, you've done extensive fieldwork in Ethiopia and China. What research questions are you trying to answer? So I'm still working on this research as I'm heading back to the fields at the end of May. But the questions that were driving my research were uh, concerned with how China projects its image um, in Ethiopia as the main case study that I was engaging in, but more broadly also in the global south, how it attempts to construct its so-called soft power, uh, what mechanisms does it use, and what reception does it garner you know, on the ground? How are different actors um, engaging with Chinese initiatives? Um, and how can we think of this idea of China's you know, version and practice of soft power as perhaps as something distinct from what we see in the West or what was had been originally conceptualized by Joseph Nye in the United States? How is China doing this differently? So can you outline what Chinese soft power investments in countries like Ethiopia look like? Um, sure. So there are a number of investments that China has poured into this you know, project of soft power. When I look at in my own research, they concerned different layers of engagement. So one of them is the engagement with elites. And I think a lot of us who focus on China's global initiatives, they've observed how China has been quite active in, uh, you know, you could use the word co-opting or engaging or befriending elites across uh, the countries in the global south. That includes um, trainings. They call them training trips. You know, you go for two to three weeks sometimes just for 10 days to China for a particular kind of educational experience, but a lot of it is really about seeing and experiencing China from the inside out. Um, there are also longer term educational opportunities for elites, fellowships for journalists, and even master's and PhD programs that are fully funded by the Chinese um, government. So that's kind of the more elite level engagement. And there's also the engagement with um, younger populations, so the youth through Confucius Institutes. And this is a project that's been quite controversial in the United States and Europe and Canada. A lot of these Confucius Institutes and classrooms have been shut down for ideological reasons, accused of propaganda and um, even surveillance. But in the context of Africa, they've actually been quite active and very dynamic in recruiting students. And in my research, I find that a lot of recruitment focuses on jobs. So once the student learns um, decent you know, uh, level of Mandarin, is able to speak relatively fluently, they can get a job at a Chinese company as a translator, as a fixer, uh, and they're paid relatively well. So there's a, an interesting kind of job employment pipeline through these institutes that um, it makes them rather attractive. And then there's also the media, which is a really big channel of China's engagement, not only in the global south, but you know, globally, China has been very actively promoting itself through its major state-owned media channels. Um, they include outlets like CGTN, China's major television network, China Daily, the English language newspaper, Xinhua News Agency is the main uh, news agency that China has compared you know, to say Reuters or AP, uh, China Radio International. So they have major bureaus, uh, you know, big hubs in Nairobi, Kenya, and then they spread their wings to other countries. Okay. So how does China use media to affect the way it's perceived beyond its borders? Um, so when it comes to the actual narratives, the, the way that they report on these stories tends to be also very different from the West. So they focus a lot on 
what uh, is described within Chinese journalistic tradition as constructive journalism. It means that the focus is on more positive stories, hopeful narratives, solutions, uh, future-oriented kind of uh, ideals, as opposed to crises, you know, negative stories, revelations, kind of the watchdog style of journalism that we are we tend to aspire to here, you know, in the U.S. or in the West at large. So this storytelling is quite different, and some Chinese scholars that I've met actually are quite proud of sort of selling this style of journalism to other countries. But when I analyze the media coverage itself, and along with other scholars who, you know, delved into this content, it seems to be less so maybe constructive, but more so kind of purely positive when it comes to China-Africa relations, for instance. A lot of this framing is about China being the uh, developer, right, kind of the empowering actor, uh, the main force uh, of improvement in Africa. So there's an element of narrative building. Um, mm -hmm. Is the United States competing with that narrative, or is it is that a separate issue? China's narrative to the American narrative? Do they exist in competition to one another? So it's interesting that it, at the level of, I guess, at the national level, and when it comes to, let's say, Washington, you know, think tanks or officials at the, uh, speaking about China and Africa, there seems to be some degree of competition because there are often remarks being invoked about what China is doing in Africa as being um, sort of immoral. It's kind of this issue of morality has been brought up a lot in relation to China recently. Well, I guess in the past five, five years or so, uh, that there's certain kind of competition for values with China and Africa seems to be the context where this competition is especially heated. And uh, it's often used as an example that China is engaging in elements of indoctrination, sharp power, you know, indebting countries into, uh, you know, to, to owe all this uh, immense resources to it and so forth. So engaging in illegitimate behavior. So in that context, there is definitely the competition from the U.S. Um, officials and, you know, just from the United States at large. But when it comes to just on the ground initiatives, you know, let's say diplomatic efforts by U.S. embassies on Twitter, on the ground and so forth, it seems that China isn't invoked maybe quite as much or there, there isn't direct effort to counteract everything China is doing. So I think there is kind of this macro level competition, but then at the micro level, maybe there's less of that, uh, which is also kind of an intriguing point because it's not quite the same thing when you look at it on the ground versus, you know, in D.C. where there's a lot of talk about China and Africa. Okay. So... We've talked a lot about this idea of a global South, and it's used mm -hmm. a lot in the way we talk about the world now, but it can be viewed as slightly ambiguous because it seems to lump together a diverse array, a, array of countries like Ethiopia, mm -hmm. Fiji, and Brazil. So can you help us understand and potentially define the term and what it means in relation to Chinese influence? Yeah, it's a complicated term because it's also has been quite a bit politicized uh, and it stems from other terms like the third world, right? That was kind of the pre-existing term that has been dismissed for, again, the political reasons that it, it seems to subject certain countries to be hierarchically lower than the than others, right? There's first, second world, third world is kind of a hierarchical dimension to it. Global South has a little bit more of an equalizing effect, but, you know, there's, there's countries that have a certain kind of developmental um levels and they tend to be located in certain contexts geographically and they're kind of connected across this very very broad matrix uh, but they're not really defined as necessarily being lower or higher than let's say global north so there's this i think some attempt to sort of equalize or create something more harmonious uh, in the, through these narratives but at the same time as you say it's, it's lumping together all kinds of countries and regions that may have little to do with each other except for maybe some levels of economic growth that may be a little bit similar, but even, even that can be debated. Uh, for example, China is often considering itself as a global south, um, right, it's, it's part of a global south, that's how it's selling its image, that it's south-south, global south, partner and so forth, but actually it's significantly more developed than most of the other countries is dealing with. So there's a lot of hierarchy there. So something that I try to unpack in my work is to kind of deconstruct this concept of global south to, to see it as also very much a political term is being deployed by China in particular for, for a certain reason, right, to kind of enhance its influence. And that within that term, within this kind of notion of global south, there are a lot of 
uh, hierarchies that are also forming. So when it comes to China's relations with Africa, or in my particular case with Ethiopia, there are all kinds of micro hierarchies and, and major hierarchies that are forming through these very, various interactions through soft power, but also just economic investments. So it's not really an equalizing kind of a idea in a way, once it's implemented in practice, we see that there are relations of power that are also you know, significantly um, shifting and in favor of China in many cases, right? So there's, there's inequality within the global South context or concept itself. So that's something that I'm trying to, to tackle in some of my own research. Okay. So building on that, China represents itself, obviously, as part of the global South, but also as a model of development. A lot of countries in the global South can be impressed with uh, China's economic rise. To what extent do you think Chinese soft power investments in the global South are part of an effort to project its developmental model for other countries to follow? Yes, I think there is an aspect of that for sure as part of its soft power initiatives, in particular when it comes to trainings, but also arguably media content as well. I mean, a lot of focus is on this developmental story. So when elites are coming to China to see what China has accomplished, a lot of it is focusing on the stories of modernity, economic development, infrastructure projects, you know, very kind of uh, high tech uh, initiatives as well. So they get to see this sort of developmental story in action. That's very much, I think, the major objective of these tours. Um, and some of the trainings, the lecture materials that I've examined as well, they focus on kind of the explaining how China has accomplished this. What are the different mechanisms behind China's you know, success story? Um, and then the media also emphasizes the developmental aspects, but in, in more so how China helps develop other countries. So there's definitely that kind of theme that resonates across its soft power you know, initiatives, even, even Confucius Institutes. The idea is to learn Chinese to improve one's well-being, right, economically. It's not just about learning the language for some kind of intellectual purpose. It's also about gaining something practical afterwards, um, development kind of at a micro level of individual. So I think that there's definitely that core theme, but but so what I would also want to question a little bit is this idea of a model, because what I found in my research is that there is no really coherent model that's being sort of exported or explained to you know various audiences because China itself has developed based on so many different uh, tools, mechanisms, that in some ways, some of these experimental governance forms have been very influential for China to, to embark on larger reforms. And so it's very difficult to explain what China has accomplished. Uh, to other countries. So so I don't quite see kind of a textbook of, oh, here's a success story, you know, here's, you read the book and you get to know what we've done and you can copy that. Uh, instead, there are some very selective stories that are being told. And, and in particular, when it comes to explaining why China is so successful, there are two reasons that I saw as being outlined in some of these general introductions that take place in these trainings. One of them is, of course, the Chinese Communist Party that is, you know, the uh, the essence of everything. It's been there for, you know, decades, and it's, it's really the essential force uh, of improving governance and explain, you know, how that works. And then the people themselves, the Chinese people are hardworking. So this is work ethic uh, that's very much praised across these initiatives and trainings. But there's a lot less discussion about like foreign direct investment or, you know, the, the various engagements that China has had with the world, with its own diasporas and so forth that actually help fuel these uh, in, you know, initial developmental projects. Uh, and of course, a lot of this discussion of the various contentious issues within this developmental project, whether it's inequality or rural governance, you know, they, they present mostly positive story. So there's kind of this combination of you know, selective storytelling, but also a bit of an ad hoc lecturing and, and showcasing you know, specific parts, like here is this company headquarters, here's the light rail, here's you know, the fast, uh, the speed, you know, the, the fast um, trains to, you know, that you'll take to Shanghai or whatever. So you get to kind of taste a little bit of these developmental success stories, but you don't quite know how it came about. It's not a very coherent story. And some Chinese lecturers I spoke to about this say that it's, it would be good to come up with something much more kind of coherent 
coherent, strategic, maybe something that is like one particular, you know, form of, I don't know, teaching or, uh, or even a book or something. But so far, I haven't seen that, um, that developed. So the model doesn't seem to be exported. But but of course, there are certain aspirations that are being promoted. And, and one of the main narratives around China's development is also to suggest to other countries that they can find their own path. So you don't copy us, don't copy the West, but you can find your own unique path towards, you know, basically developmental story that you're trying to accomplish. So you can pick and choose from different places, but we're not kind of a model for you to just mimic and, and, and copy. Um, so that I found that to be you know intriguing, but at the same time, officials who come, they don't they don't always come away with very concrete answers, right? They're, they're, they think that it's exciting to see China, but how do you implement what China has done? Uh, that's a whole different story. So it's kind of a, a combination of a, a nebulous development track, positive mm -hmm. narrative building, and then non-interference in how countries are developing. Yeah, that's a great way to summarize it. Yes, it's this, this kind of three, the three factors definitely is, is, is what I've observed in my in my research. Okay, so building on that, according to a report of the 20th National Party Congress last year, China is prepared to invest more resources in global development cooperation. Mm -hmm. It's committed to narrowing the north-south gap and supporting and assisting other developing countries to accelerate their own development. But given its relatively slow rate of economic growth in recent years, can it really afford to do this? Yeah, it's it's a it's an it's a great question. It's it's a, it seems to be that um, yeah, there's a lot to observe in that space because just last year, I think well, already two years ago, 2021 uh, report. This was the FOCAC meeting suggested that China is cutting back on investments uh, in Africa. So we see that there's some kind of pullback, and I think part of it could be the slowdown of Chinese economy. Part of it could also be reevaluation of China's goals, you know, globally as well as when it comes to its SOEs and just you know the companies operating in Africa. To what extent has this really been a successful story? Are they just incurring more debt? You know, are they losing? money so there's maybe some kind of reflection to you know how is bri really working the belt and road initiative is, is it really is it really effective and successful is it kind of incurring more debt for china so maybe there's some of that happening as well but also china engaging in more regions than it used to so africa used to be kind of the, the focal point but now a lot of engagement is also focused on latin america the caribbean uh, like more resources poured into central asia so there's just a lot happening uh, globally. So maybe there's, there's part of it is supposed to be rebalancing the resources. But it is interesting to observe how this kind of shrinking of um, investments, but also soft power initiatives is going to affect China's image. So large and important questions on the return on investment of what of mm -hmm. China's soft power and hard power investments in the global south. Yeah, absolutely. To what extent are some of these investments, you know, only yielding very short term benefits? Thank you, Maria, for explaining the motivations for China's investment in Africa. This has been an enlightening discussion. That was Maria Refnikova, Associate Professor in Global Communication at Georgia State University. This podcast is a co-production of the Eurasia Group Foundation and the SOAS China Institute, part of the University of London. And you can find out more about the Institute's courses and research at soas.ac.uk. But for now, that's all for us here at the China in Context podcast team. <laughs>